Thanks for tuning in to the Diabetes Dish Podcast brought to you by DiabeticLifestyle.com. Here's your host, Maureen Connolly. Welcome to our webinar on the ABCs of better A1Cs. I'm Maureen Connolly, the editor of DiabeticLifestyle.com and the host of the Diabetes Dish, a webinar and podcast series from Vertical Health. So if you're not already a regular visitor to Diabetic Lifestyle, come check out the site because we've got fantastic articles and blogs on how to manage, manage your type 1 and type 2 diabetes as well as prediabetes. You'll find helpful medication guides, inspirational stories, celebrity interviews, and hundreds of diabetes-friendly recipes created by award-winning cookbook authors. So before we get started, a few quick notes. The presentation is about 40 minutes and will follow with a 10-minute question and answer session. So you can type your questions in the box that you see in the lower right-hand corner of your screen. And if you can't stay with us for the whole webinar, don't worry. You'll get an email with the link to access the recording and the slides. And so now I'd like to introduce today's presenter, Diabetic Lifestyle Advisory Board member and certified diabetes educator, Amy Hess-Fischel. Amy is a nutrition specialist and a certified insulin pump trainer, and she is also the program coordinator for the Teen and Adolescent Diabetes Transition Program, the University of Chicago's Kovler Diabetes Center. Welcome, Amy. Hello. Happy Thursday, everyone. I want to thank you so much for, for listening in today, and I wanted to at least just give you one small uh, apology in advance, just in case. Um, I work at the University of Chicago, and I am not at the corner of Happy and Healthy. I'm actually at the corner of ambulances and helicopters. So every ambulance and helicopter tends to go by my window. We're going to have fingers crossed that you're not going to hear those sirens, but I want to apologize in advance. Uh, that nothing bad is happening, it's just that every catastrophe tends to come by my window into our wonderful uh, university. So uh, today we have a lot of ground to cover. So uh, as, as we see uh, on our next slide uh, that uh, we're going to be talking about several things, but you know, A1C really encompasses every part of diabetes. So uh, while this is by no means kind of a, an end-all be-all of, of everything with diabetes, but I want to touch upon a lot of, of different, uh, different pieces. Uh, so without further ado, uh, let us uh, start with uh, just a little check-in regarding your diabetes self-management. So of course, I know that you're not going to be answering these questions, but in your, in your head, if you could answer, uh, what, if we can just see what, where you are with your diabetes self-management. So I have my A1C tested by my healthcare provider at least every three to six months. I have a blood glucose meter and check my blood sugar. So I, again, I obviously use glucose and sugar kind of, they are the same, but I just don't like blood sugar meter. It just sounds weird. Um, I do some form of physical activity every day and I eat healthy foods every day. So when we think about diabetes care, th these are really important components. So for those of you who have answered yes to all of these, awesome, you guys are rock stars. But for those who are not, you are also rock stars because again, the goal today is really to help you uh, to uh, achieve those goals. So let us talk about uh, what is A1C. And so it is also called hemoglobin A1C because it's essentially measuring the percentage of sugar that is attached to the hemoglobin in the red blood cell. So what happens is that uh, these cute little red blood cells are floating around in our bloodstream and any extra sugar is going to attach to that hemoglobin um, in the red blood cell. So the more that's in our bloodstream, the more that's going to attach and the, the higher that percentage will be. So one thing that we do want to keep in mind is that why we're checking it every three months is because really every four weeks, a third of our red blood cells kind of die and we get new ones. It would be horrible, of course, if we had all of them die at the same time. But you know, again, that's why it's every four weeks. So by three months, we have kind of a do-over. Uh, and that's why we're doing A1Cs um, at that time. Uh, so looking at the picture here, when we look at non-diabetes, um, less sugar is attached versus those high, uh, we're going to see more sugar attached. So when we talk about A1C goals, the most important thing that you need to understand about diabetes is that yours and your diabetes may vary. And so we have to individualize your care. 
So when we look at the guidelines that are set by various organizations, and so here in the, in the United States we have two. So the American Diabetes Association recommends that the A1C is under 7%. According to the American Association of Clinical Endocrinologists, and those are diabetes specialists, the A1C is under 6.5. Now why are those numbers the way they are? They are based on really big studies that were done over years. Two of them called the Diabetes Control and Complications Trial that was looking at type 1 diabetes, and then the UK PDS, so the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study. They all looked at where should the A1C be to reduce the risk of long-term complications. And so what they found in those studies is that with an A1C under 7 was the biggest predictor of reduced complications. So that's why those numbers are the way they are. Uh, but A1C is going to be individualized depending on several factors. So when we think of age, now again, a healthy 50, 60, 70-year-old or even 80-year-old may have the same goals that you're seeing above here, uh, but perhaps a 95-year-old won't have the same goals. Uh, when we think of health, uh, life expectancy. So again, if somebody has stage four lung cancer, you know, are we going to have the same same goals? No, we're not. And then other comorbid conditions, so other things that are going on in the body. If somebody has um, a, a history of heart attacks um, or even heart surgeries, um, because low blood sugar can actually trigger further heart attacks the goal for those people may be different and they're going to, the A1Cs are going to be higher. Uh, so again, certainly there's a lot of pieces that are, that are involved uh, in this. But again, working with your healthcare provider is going to be really important to individualize for you. But we know that the lower the less risk of those long-term complications. And that's the name of the game when it comes to diabetes care. So blood sugar testing, because A1C and blood sugar testing are they're very integral to diabetes care, but they're, they're related. So when we think of A1C, that's kind of the, the big picture. Uh, but blood sugar testing is kind of giving us what is happening right now. And that's in that immediate snapshot of what's happening. Um, so some really important things to know. Um, you know, based on conversations that I've had with patients over the years, you know, I remember someone coming in to me and saying, you know what, my blood sugar is going to be high today because I ate a donut yesterday. And it doesn't really work that way. Food does not stick around that long. So again, it's really important that we understand that when we're focusing on food, that it really comes down to um, it's only going to be affecting us for a few hours. Um, physical activity can affect blood sugars for up to 24 hours later. Now, that's why we'll talk about exercise in just a little while, but why it's really important to know how physical activity does affect you specifically, so then if you have to come up with a plan. Because um, like I said, everything's related, and so when we're talking about medications, um, all of those things, we have to, we have to understand them. Um, but exercise, because we're using our muscles, is actually going to help lower blood sugar. So it is a, is a really good tool to help decrease our, our blood sugars. Uh, illness and stress can also cause blood sugars to rise and stay elevated. So we want to know that and have a plan in place. Um, technique for testing blood sugars can affect the blood sugar results. So when we're poking the finger and squeezing really hard to get that blood drop, the blood sugar may be higher because it's actually causing more concentration in that blood drop. Um, also, if you're not cleaning your hands um, before testing, if you were touching food like a banana, like I was eating my banana for breakfast, if I uh, don't clean my finger and then I test my blood sugar, it's going to show a falsely elevated number. Um, so again, we want to kind of set ourselves up for success when it comes to testing blood sugar. So, of course, the next really important question that we want to talk about is when? When should you test? And now, of course, insurance dictates that. So we do want to keep that in mind, that if somebody is not taking insulin, um, your insurance won't let you test very often. And so that's where we as diabetes educators get creative with you to, to help you and maximize the testing that you're doing. So for the most part, if somebody's only taking oral medications for diabetes or no medicines at all, uh, again, we could still get away with testing twice a day at various times. But when we talk about when to test, we never want to just only test one time a day. I've had a lot of people come in and say, oh, I'm always checking at breakfast. 
Well, sure, that's going to give us what's happening overnight, but it doesn't really fill us in with what's happening for the rest of the day. So we want to kind of mix it up and identify different times throughout the day to test and maximize what it's telling us. So we certainly want to look at first thing in the morning, but also before and after meals before and after exercise, and before going to bed. So if somebody is testing only once or twice a day, uh, what I tend to recommend is let's maximize those, those test strips that you're getting and just start with, you know, today, do before breakfast, tomorrow before lunch, the next day before dinner, the next at bedtime. And then if those are within goal that we'll talk about in a minute, then we can look at some after meal numbers. If somebody's testing twice a day, we could do something called you know, testing in pairs. So choosing a meal or choosing an activity after, because then it's going to give us a lot of information. But, but testing really is kind of our way that as diabetes educators to help you and empower you in what you need to do for your diabetes care. Now, what are the Organizations, the American Diabetes Association, ADA, before meals, the goal is under 1.30. If at peak post-meal, so one hour after, uh, is should be under 1.80. Now, the ACE guidelines, before meals, under 1.20, and two hours after meals, under 1.40. So these are really crucial for you to understand, especially if you're testing, because you really... You know, again, if you're testing and you don't really know where you need to be, the information is useless. So again, this kind of empowers you to be like, ah, so now where do my numbers fall with these recommendations? And if they're not falling within the recommendations, that's where talking with an educator, talking with uh, your doctor about what are the next steps? What do we need to do? Um, but also, as we were talking about before, as with A1C goals that could be individual actors, blood glucose goals are going to be individualized as well. So if someone's goals, A1C goals are higher, of course their blood glucose goals are higher. But again, for the most part, these are kind of those recommend, recommendations um, that are done. Now, what we want to do is really put the two pieces together. So looking at what does A1C and how do average blood sugars, how do they kind of fit together? Um, so this was kind of designed um, to just kind of translate what that A1C really means in real life terms. So I, I actually have this chart uh, on my wall in my office here. And you know, when I tell patients what their A1C is, it's so funny because again, I've been working with patients, some of these patients for so long, their head just kind of automatically pops up and looks at the this uh, little poster on my wall just to see what the atom identifies. So this is a really nice kind of tool to say, all right, well, if my A1C is eight, my average is 183, I really want to get that lower. Uh, but, you know, keep in mind that there are many factors that affect A1C. You know, so again, um, we, I, I'm really talking about this in kind of a bubble right now, but, you know, let's really talk about all of the factors and explore some of those factors um, and that can affect uh, A1C right now. So, you know, we're going to start with what I consider the most important factor, but I'm a dietitian, so of course I'm going to say that. But we know that meal planning is the cornerstone of diabetes care. So uh, when we think of, of food, food is the most important and the easiest modified factor that can affect blood sugar and A1C. So there are three forms of energy and calories in our diet, um, carbohydrate, fat, and protein. All of them are needed you know, in our bodies to work. Um, so again, I don't want to say one is better than the other and we don't want to eliminate any of them. Um, I do want to comment that there is a fourth form of energy, alcohol, but again, it's not necessary like carbohydrate, fat, fat and protein. Uh, but when we're choosing the right foods is important really for overall health, but when it comes to better blood sugar and A1C, the one component that is most important to start with is carbohydrate because it's the main type of food that's going to break down into sugar. And that's what's going to have the biggest impact on blood sugars in A1C. So what is carbohydrate? And the joke with all of the patients I see is everything except meat and fat. And so again, cereals, grains, starchy vegetables, fruits, juices, milk, yogurt, dessert items. Now again, all of those can fit. It's again, we want to look at portion control in that. And so we're going to talk about that in just a minute. Um, but I wanted to just comment one thing for that there are multiple meal planning methods for diabetes care. 
Carbohydrate counting is the most useful meal plan uh, for those on insulin and adjusting their meal time doses. So yeah, again, while I personally do not use this as my first choice for those with type 2 diabetes because there are other ways that aren't as um, overwhelming to start with, um, but really this is an essential tool for those who are taking mealtime insulin and adjusting their doses. So uh, reading food labels, regardless of whether somebody is carb counting or not, is really important because, again, it's going to tell us a lot of things about the foods that we're eating. But one really important component um, is the serving size because we do need to understand what that looks like. Um, so even if you're not carb counting, measuring and possibly weighing foods is a wonderful way to help you estimate in the future uh, because we do know um, that most people cannot estimate servings. Now, in fact, there was a study several years ago looking at registered dietitians, in fact, and to identify if they could estimate portions correctly. And the answer was they could not. Dietitians are like everybody else. Again, we need to go through these kind of exercises to be able to learn um, how to further estimate. And we do tend to find, even with the patients that I work with, uh, I like them to even weigh and measure ju just to get that estimation in their head on a, you know, every two to three months. So again, you know, a day or two doing a little bit of measuring so they know, you know, how much is eight ounces in their glass? What does it look like on their plate? Uh, but again, it does tend to stick in our head for about two to three months. Uh, so again, it's not that somebody has to do this uh, every single day of their lives forever. But again, this is a wonderful way for us to better estimate because it is all about the portion size. Now, reading food labels, like I said, even for carb counting, uh, is going to be essential. But even for those who are not carb counting, knowing what the serving size is of a particular item can even help us decrease the calories that we're eating and even help us with weight loss without doing anything else. So it is important to understand that, that a food label has a lot of information on it, but when we're really talking about for diabetes care, we're really only focusing on the serving size because everything between the two black lines on the bottom are based on that serving size and the total carb. Why? Because everything indented below the total carbohydrate is already in there. So do not focus on sugars. I know that uh, sugars is a lot of people really focus on that, um, but it's already part of that number. The total carb is what breaks down completely into sugar, not just the sugars. Um, so it is really crucial to, to know that and even just start small with, with looking at nutrition facts labels uh, because you don't have to get look at everything. You know, but again, for diabetes care, just looking at those two pieces is going to be really, really helpful. So the next piece that we want to look at is, you know, just kind of a little more bigger picture items that, you know, food itself, that we, we have some truths about meal planning and diabetes. Um, there really is no such thing as a diabetic diet. Um, I know that in some hospitals they still do that, but again, um, in real life, um, all foods can fit, you know, and it's really not what but how much. And so that's why it's so crucial to understand serving sizes. Um, and also, when it comes to meal planning, everyone is different. So we don't want to generalize and say, you can only follow this meal plan. But working with a registered dietitian is really helpful. And as I mentioned before, uh, again, with blood sugar control, by, by checking blood sugars before a particular meal. So I have patients that come in and they might do a food log for me, uh, but if they're gonna be testing, they're only gonna do a food log for that meal. So on Monday they'll do breakfast, Tuesday they'll do lunch, Wednesday they'll do dinner, and then you know they'll, they'll repeat that two or three times and bring me that information and checking their blood sugars before and after. So with that information, then we can make adjustments. But when we think about some of the easier methods of meal planning for diabetes, I, I love the plate method because it is really useful for estimating portions, um, but 
and also kind of reducing the amount uh, that we are consuming at a meal. So typically the plate method looks like, you know, half a plate is of non-starchy vegetables. Why? Because non-starchy vegetables like salads and broccoli, cauliflower, you know, all of those are, are lower in calories. So by filling up on that, we stay full without adding so many calories, but also it is a little bit lower in carbohydrates, so it's not going to cause our blood sugars to rise so much. A quarter of the plate could be starch or grain, which is carbohydrate. A quarter of the plate is protein, not carbohydrate. And then still having a serving of fruit or even a serving of dairy. So again, we're still wanting to make sure that we're including all of the healthy components of, of eating, uh, but yeah, again, it's all about the serving size. So, so that's really important. Now, understanding what a healthy plate looks like is crucial in making good choices. So the next two slides are just gonna, just wanna give you a nice visual of what breakfast and what dinner should look like. So obviously at breakfast, um, that it's, we're not gonna be having vegetables. Although there are many people that I know that do have vegetables at, at breakfast, but it's not, it's not required. Uh, but again, just kind of giving you just an overview that having a quarter of that plate is starch, a quarter of that plate is protein. And you can, you can keep the, the half of the plate empty or adding um, a, a small piece of fruit and then still having your, your milk. So you're not, you're not getting rid of a lot of, of food. You know, you're still not gonna be depriving yourself but it is all about the serving size. Now, and one really important piece when it comes to breakfast is not skipping. You know, again, a lot of people think that that's a really good idea um, because we're not gonna be eating the calories and so you'll, you, you might lose weight that way. Keep in mind that breakfast is we are breaking the fast. So metabolically speaking, what happens is that if we don't eat, the body still thinks it's asleep and we're not burning calories. And so what could happen is that the body says, oh, well, we don't need to burn calories at this time. And, and then what you'll even gain weight when you're trying to add breakfast again. So we want to make sure that we're not messing with our metabolism by, by just kind of letting us ride until the next meal and say, oh, I'm not hungry. Not being hungry is a dangerous sign because, again, telling us, not burning is really helpful to kind of get things jump started and kind of help us to actually burn calories that we need. Now, lunch and dinner, again, as you as we were talking before a couple slides ago, looking at kind of that general plate method, you know, the half of the plate would be vegetables. So like I said, they're the non-starchy vegetables, the lower calorie, um, lower carbohydrate. Then a quarter of the plate can still be starch. So when we talk about starchy vegetables, that's where peas, corn, potatoes, that's where they fall in. But also rices and pastas would be there. So this is a when we, especially when patients come to see me uh, about eating and pasta. Pasta, when we look at this plate, only a quarter of my plate can be pasta. Well, it depends on what the blood sugars tell us. So again, that's why individualizing is really important. But this is a nice first step for people to understand how do we reduce the amount that we're eating to cut back on our portion sizes to help with better blood sugar control, help our A1C, to help with weight, also to help with um, in reducing our risk of complications and, and other comorbid conditions that can happen with diabetes. Now also with uh, the lunch and dinner, you know, again, having the protein. And so that quarter of a, of a plate of protein is basically um, you know anywhere from four three to five ounces uh, so again there's yeah you know, just so you you understand that that you know, again you're not skimping on that either now just the general guidelines for meal planning again understanding and estimating so looking at kind of serving size now the hand method I, I think this is a cute little visual uh, but the hand does depend on the person that we're talking to you know I had uh, you know, a 40-year-old male come in not that long ago and his hand was the size of two of mine. And so, you know, again, his hand would not be appropriate. So, so again, certainly we do want to make sure it's kind of an average size hand. Um, but I sometimes even like using just regular items. Like, a, you know, when we think about a, a cup, um, we could be talking about a tennis ball. So, again, I, just so you know that we're, when we're looking at the hand, it is going to depend on how big that hand is. Um, but when we 
choose the types of foods, you know, selecting a variety of fruits and vegetables. The more colorful that we're getting, the more vitamins and minerals we're going to be adding. So that's really important. Um, more whole grains. Uh, and so we want to know that even uh, marketing is, is key with a lot of the companies. So it might say, you know, whole wheat on, on a package. It doesn't mean that it's whole grain. So taking a look at the ingredients and if whole grain, it should be the first or second ingredient in that list. Uh, so just some small things that you can do looking at protein. So of meat, you know, not heavily marbled, looking at choosing healthier fats, our healthier versions, so olives, olive oil, avocados, nuts, um, and nut oils. One very important piece, though, you know, again, calories. And so, again, we don't want to have four handfuls of nuts because that is the equivalent. So, again, we want to make sure that we are focusing on the serving size when it comes to the different kinds of fats that we're using. Um, and then eating kind of ourselves up for success when we're eating out. So limiting some of the fried or bread food, breaded foods or those that are sautéed um, or in heavy cream because, again, they're going to have more calories. Um, but definitely you know, the, the serving sizes that they, they give us at, when we're eating out, they are, they're enormous. Uh, I had to give a presentation last night, and they, they gave me enough for four people. It's, uh, it's just not, it's not really ideal for losing weight or even better blood sugar control. So cutting the portions in half and sharing it or taking the other half home. I like just saying, bring me a doggy bag now, and then I'll cut everything in half so I'm not going to be tempted because, again, if I'm talking uh, with friends or you know, I'm out to dinner, um, I'm more likely to just keep eating, that all-purpose eating, uh, if, if it's not taken away from me. And then also the appetizers or eating something before the main meal. So kind of skipping the bread or the chip basket before the meal because, again, that's just going to be adding extra calories um, and more carbohydrate, which can affect our blood sugars. Think of what do we have all of this information, and, and again, individualizing is key. How do, what do we need to do? And while as a dietitian and diabetes educator, I want people to bring in food logs for me, but food logs are useful tools even in the app, a nice little check-in as to what we're doing. And even I will still do a food log. It is, it is very helpful to us. Um, but we can do food logs in a variety of ways. You know, again, I still do things, and I like the physical writing to help. But you can also type things into your telephone, uh, or even put it into a Word document on your computer. But there are telephone apps that are available that are very, very helpful. These are whether it's for an Apple phone or a Droid phone. Um, these are all free telephone apps. So Lose It, My Food Diary, My Net Diary, Go Meals, My Fitness Pal, uh, My Plate. My, my top three usually are Go Meals, Lose It, and My Fitness Pal, um, just because, again, I, I like what they can do. Um, and especially with Go Meals, it can kind of um, help you track exercise as control for those with diabetes. Uh, so, again, it is just a really nice tool for people. Um, but, again, while food logs can be done for Ever. Um, but again, it doesn't, it's not necessary. You could certainly go ahead and just do it as a check-in, even on a, you know, even on a monthly basis. Um, but certainly we want to make sure that, that that is done before seeing a registered dietitian uh, and in conjunction with blood sugars so then they can help you to further individualize your care. So how do we improve eating habits for better A1C? You know, again, as I was saying, individualize, individualize. It's all about really working with a healthcare but that food log you're eating, starting small. You know, again, I remember when I was starting as a dietitian 20 years ago, I remember telling a patient, giving them like 15 things to do. Absolutely overwhelming. It was kind of silly of me to do that, um, but it's not possible. You know, again, we have to really focus on small time. We need to set ourselves up for success.
So the keys that what I like to do, especially if somebody hasn't been making any changes to their meal plan up until now, eliminating caloric beverages. So ditching regular soft drinks, juices, uh, Gatorades, Powerades, get rid of them. Those are not helpful. But increasing your vegetables, uh, again, even whether that's as a snack, um, including it with your lunch, making sure that you're definitely getting two to three servings at dinner, and then cutting your portions by a third if you need to. So again, taking a look at the plate method and identify, do I need to make some adjustments? But these are three really simple things that people can start on that will have a very big impact. And again, while I shouldn't be saying this as a dietitian, but we know that nutrition really isn't rocket science. It, but it takes a long time for us to see the benefit of what we're doing. So it's crucial that we in a society that likes to, uh, you know, we need things done yesterday. We want instant gratification, that we understand that this is a process and that we really have to kind of let things ride for a little while in order to see what it does. Uh, but once you do make the changes, then kind of reviewing how it affected your blood sugars. Um, so it's always a constant check-in. But if you're seeing your, your doctor or other healthcare professional every three months, um, that's a really nice time to do that kind of check-in um, because it's, it's a wonderful way to just keep making small changes that are going to lead to, to better uh, A1Cs and you feeling better overall. Now, the next factor that can affect A1C in a good way is exercise. So when we think of what are the recommendations, so the American Diabetes Association, 150 of but well, what is really going on in our body? Well, that muscles use sugar for energy. So again, we tend to sit on our we're walking around, you know, our butts are using a lot of sugar. So again, I have to say getting off our butts and walking is a very good way to help sugar and also help reduce blood sugar as well. So any muscle movement will help reduce blood sugars. So when we kind of set things up um, that for even for better blood sugar control, it may mean as little as 10 minutes three times a day. Um, so there was a study many years ago that really looked at this, and they found that even doing 10 minutes after meals kind of helped the body use the sugar from the meal uh, better and reduced the blood sugars and subsequent A1Cs. Um, so again, it, when we talk about blood sugar control, small amounts could have a big impact. It's not going to really do as much for weight management, though. So when we talk about weight loss, longer bouts of activity are going to be required. And so a lot of the, the research now is looking at an hour to an hour and a half every day. Now, a pedometer can also be helpful. So, you know, the goal, kind of that ambiguous goal, is 10,000 steps a day. Um, many people do not know this, but again, it was really the 10,000 steps a day is based on Japanese guidelines that were designed in the Sanpo is actually the Japanese word for 10,000 steps. Um, so what they did is they, they found that doing about um, 2,000, by burning 2,000 calories a day, reduced the risk of, of heart disease. And that equated to about 300 calories per day, which is about 10,000 steps. So that's kind of how it evolved. Um, but again, while it's, it's a nice goal to have a pedometer, but again, if somebody isn't doing a lot of steps at all, we want to try and aim for at least more than 5,000 steps because they consider under 5,000 steps to be sedentary. Uh, so again, we, we need to just keep moving ahead. So if somebody isn't exercising, we're, these are kind of those general guidelines, but we have to start small. So when we think about how do we improve our exercise habits, um, we need to take those baby steps. So if you're not active at all, start with one or two minutes, three or five, four times a day, and keep building up. Now, making a schedule for your activity is crucial. 
you know, I have to say that this it goes for me as well. That I I do wear a pedometer, um, I wear a Fitbit, and uh, again, I my goal is 15,000 steps a day. And so I have to have you know my phone is screaming at me to exercise at night. Um, for the most part, I try to take a walk on my lunch break um, here at work, uh, so I can I can meet those goals. Um, but we do need to have kind of a schedule and schedule it kind of like an appointment. Um, because then we're, we are more apt to actually follow. Um, and perhaps actually exercising with someone else um, does help as well. Because again, then you're not letting someone else down um, if you, you know, you have to go. So again, some people have kind of some, some additional source so then um, they have, they, they can actually exercise with someone else. Including a variety of activities. So again, when we think of the organization, it includes aerobic activity, resistance training, and flexibility. So again, stretching is perfectly wonderful, um, but aerobic activity could mean a variety of things. So it doesn't necessarily mean that you have to go to the gym, um, but even just walking. So as I said, you know, on my lunch break, I take a walk around the campus um, you know, every day. And so, you know, again, it, it just requires me to have my gym shoes or my Tevas, and, you know, again, then I can get my exercise done. So, you know, again, you want to incorporate it into your life uh, and where it's going to fit. Um, but resistance um, and flexibility. Re resistance, um, that's going to help with, with muscle mass because, again, as we get older, um, our, our muscle mass deep. Um, so we want to make sure that we're doing some type of resistance um, to help maintain our muscle mass. And flexibility, you know, stretching or yoga, just, again, we want to make sure that everything's working properly. So, uh, again, definitely if you're not exercising any, in, in any way, shape, or form, um, you know, again, just starting really small. Now, stress is another very big component in affecting A1C, and not necessarily in a good way. Uh, we know that any type of stress on the body is going to cause the blood sugar to rise. So whether it's illness, infection, as well as mental stress. Uh, so we know that you know stress raises blood pressure, so it, it's also it's affecting us the same way. So how does stress affect us? Well, hormones are, are rampant in our body, and so when something like this happens in our body, those hormones tell our liver to kick out extra sugar, causing the blood sugar to rise. Um, and so again, we want to have a plan for these types of situations so we, we know how to deal with them. And in fact, I just got an email today from another patient of, of mine saying, you know, I have, I'm so stressed, what do I do? And so, so certainly, you know, again, working with your healthcare provider is really important, but other ways to reduce stress is, is talking to a professional. You know, we're fortunate here at the University of Chicago, we have um, psychology externs that work in our clinic every day. And so again, we have people that you can just vent to. So it does, re it's really nice. But other ways to reduce stress, mental stress at least, is to deep breathing, meditation, even reaching out to a friend, you know, music. I, I have to say that it, it truly calms me down. Um, here in Chicago, we have a classical music station uh, that I listen to on the way home, and it's called the Unrush Hour. So again, it really kind of helps me get, get through and kind of decompress for my day. But there are some really great apps that are available, free apps, um, that can help with, with some of these deep breathing and meditations. Uh, Calm is one of them. Um, the Omvane is a, another free one. Uh, guided meditation and breathe to relax. Um, but you could certainly just Google um, free uh, meditation apps. Uh, and there are some really nice ones that can kind of get you started. Uh, so I, I strongly encourage it. Now, this is a very busy slide, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but it's really important that you understand how your medicines affect you. So when we talk about the big ones that people take, metformin are called by their biguanides. Um, they're going to be helping the liver from kicking out too much sugar. Uh, DPP-4 inhibitors, uh, Genuvia is one of them, Trigenta, um, is going to help a little more in um, our GI tract. Um, sulfonylureas. Um, Meglitides, DPP-4s, insulin and incretin mimetics, they work a little bit on the pancreas. These could increase the risk of, of hypoglycemia. And so why am I bringing this up? It's important that you 
know which medicines you're taking for diabetes and how they affect your blood sugar. Um, because again, we want to make sure that you, you're not having any, any adverse effects because of the medicines, um, but you want to be able to have a plan in place in case something happens. Now, when we think of all of these medicines, um, it, they are going to have differing effects on your A1C. And so when we look at the expected decrease, um, you know, again, why I bring up the expected decreases is that medication. So when we think of all of these medications, um, they bring you the biggest bang for your buck. Uh, so we really do want to, to take a closer look at which ones are going to cause hypoglycemia. And so when I look at these, sulfonylureas are going to have the biggest impact on causing hypoglycemia. Um, so again, it's really important um, that you know which medicines that you're taking uh, and talking with your doctor if they're, at, they're increasing your risk of hypoglycemia. Uh, next slide, please. Um, I just wanted to point out that when lifestyle, so even just making changes to the exercise and our meal planning, it can reduce your A1C by 1 to 2%. Um, but as I was saying, you know, these medicines, which gives you the biggest bang for your buck, when we think of insulin, that's going to lower your A1C quite a bit. Uh, and the metformin still can as well. Um, sulfonylureas, to, it, it could certainly have an effect on your on hypoglycemia. So we do want to keep, keep track of that and talk to your doctors. And on that note, you know, I do want to talk a little bit more about treating hypoglycemia um, because while when you know which ones are affecting uh, your your blood sugars, we we want to make sure when it comes to what is considered hypoglycemia, uh, and that's low blood sugar. It's anything uh, your a blood sugar under seventy. Uh, so again, we want to make sure that you have some treatment options for low blood sugar. Uh, so the general rule is the rule of fifteen. So eating 15 grams of fast act, half a cup of juice, four glucose tablets, waiting 15 minutes, and then retesting to make sure that the blood sugar is elevated. Um, so again, if this is happening to you, talking to your healthcare provider um, because you, you may need to make some adjustments to the medicines that you're taking. But certainly, what, what else do you need to do to better understand your medicines? Um, definitely work with your pharmacist. Uh, so if you go to a local pharmacist, um, make sure that you are talking to them and understanding how your medicines work. Um, know how, what they're doing in your body. Um, find out if any of your medicines can cause hypoglycemia. And initially, perhaps testing your blood sugars a little bit more to identify how the medicines are affecting you. Um, if you are taking insulin at mealtimes, testing those blood sugars before and two hours later. And if it's under 140, as we were talking, um, there could be some risk of, of hypoglycemia. So again, definitely making sure that you're talking to your, your healthcare provider about this. Now, time. Time is going to affect A1C. The longer that someone has diabetes, the more help the body's going to need. So we do tend to find that even with type 2 diabetes, after 15 to 20 years, the pancreas essentially poops out. And so, uh, again, there will be the need for more medications. So it's just important for people under, to understand that they're not doing anything wrong. It's not their fault. It's just that it's the natural progression of diabetes. Uh, and insulin may be required. Now, my shameless plug as a diabetes educator and dietitian, you know, how, how do we fit in? Well, of course, I would say we fit in very well. We, you know, as, as dietitians and diabetes educators, we'd love to see more patients. Uh, we're not seeing enough of you. So, again, definitely um, we, we want to make sure that, you know, all people with diabetes regularly see a dietitian or diabetes educator. Um, it is recommended even on an annual basis, but other times. Uh, so what can a dietitian and diabetes educator do? You know, keep you up to date on the different treatments. Um, the meal planning recommendations, because things are going to change on a regular basis. So again, it is important to have that kind of check-in um, because, you know, there's a lot going on with diabetes, and it's good to talk to an expert uh, about what you're going through so then you 
have the tools that you need. So in 2015, a position paper was published jointly by the American Diabetes Association, the American Association for Diabetes Educators, and the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and they were highlighting the importance of diabetes education and when it should occur. And so the four critical times should be at educating factors occur and when transitions in care. So again, essentially, you know, as, as a diabetes educator, we're saying all the time. We'd love to see you all the time. Uh, but even on, on a, every three months is perfectly acceptable. So the next two slides, algorithm from that position paper. And it just kind of highlights um, when a doctor should be um, referring patients. And so again, it's essentially all the time. You know, and, and definitely, as I said, at least annually is key. Um, and now the next slide just kind of goes into what is going to be done during those visits. And that's really important for people with diabetes to understand. So here at our office at the University of Chicago, we have 14 different clinic rooms, and I have these two slides hanging in there. So the doctors know what to do, but also when the patients are waiting for their doctor to come, they can see what diabetes self-management education really entails. And it's very, very common comprehensive. Um, so it's important that your questions, what is right for you. So of course the question that many ask is how often should I receive education? Now certainly it is dictated by insurance, um, but Medicare covers diabetes self-management training and diabetes self-management education are one and the same. Um, but just as educators we like calling it education. Um, but when somebody is initially diagnosed, they receive, they could receive up to 10 hours of free diabetes education uh, and three hours of medical nutrition therapy. And then every year after that, they are eligible to get two hours of diabetes education and two hours of nutrition therapy. So for everyone who has Medicare, um, please be sure that you are taking advantage of this and getting a referral from your doctor to see a diabetes educator or dietitian in your area. Um, because again, um, it's, it's important to, to help individualize what your needs are. Now, with looking at kind of the big picture, you know, so no your goal is important that A1C encompasses everything, but the goals that are set for you based on these guidelines is crucial for you to work with your healthcare provider to individualize your, your plan. And blood sugars, while they can be frustrating, are so helpful to learn how your meals, how exercise, how your medicines, and how stress affects you. One really important piece that I do have to bring up is that there is no such thing as perfection. So again, we're not looking for something perfect with diabetes care. You know, I, so it's really important that you cut yourself some slack uh, when you're, you're making all these wonderful positive changes um, and you're like, I, I would be expecting something more. But it's really important that, that you are working with your healthcare provider to, to really hone in on, on really what your needs are, um, but cut yourself some slack and be nice to yourself. So I want to thank you so much for listening today. You know, I'm, I'm really happy to answer any questions that you may have, um, comments or even a limerick. I'm, I'm open to all of them. <laughs> well, thanks, Amy. I don't have a limerick um, for you, but I do have a participant who wants to know if you can elaborate on what counts as exercise. Oh, and I'd say certainly, I definitely, I know a lot of people when I see them, they're like, oh, man, I don't want to go to the gym. Don't even think about that. You know, it could just be doing some house walking, walking around your house. That counts as exercise. Uh, even doing some gardening or even uh, vacuuming the, the, your rugs. So all of those are considered exercise. So more importantly, think of movement. You know, again, are we moving? So I have some teenage patients that they just jam out in their bedroom and just dance around. That is movement. That is exercise. So, so certainly we have to get rid of that traditional thinking of going to the gym and hopping on a treadmill. Uh, again, we have lots of ways to just move our muscles. 
So I guess if you compare though, like the walking, are you aiming to get, you know, walk at a brisk pace to get your heart rate up? I mean, maybe you can explain a little bit about, you know, gardening is great, but should you also try and incorporate some more taxing uh, types of exercise? It depends on your current physical activity. You know, so again, certainly what is typically recommended is before someone doing any moderate or strenuous physical activity that they do talk to their healthcare provider to make sure that they're, it's safe for them to do so. Um, so if somebody is kind of a couch potato and they're not currently doing any physical activity whatsoever, um, we don't necessarily want to do, you know, bringing the heart rate up. So it really does come down to kind of baby stepping. So if, if, you're, if you're not active at all, um, I would say gardening is a good place to start, and then let's just start walking as in moseying and see how you do, and then build up from there. Um, but again, this is exercise is a process. Um, we don't want to go from zero to 60 uh, because, again, someone could um, hurt themselves that way. Okay, great advice. Uh, the second question, uh, is there an app that I can use to help regulate the amount of sugar I'm taking based off of what I'm eating for a certain meal or on a certain day? So, There are definitely apps, and I, I want to just clarify that I know that sugar is a really big thing people focus on, but as we talked, uh, with the, the food label, we don't really want to be focusing on sugars anymore. We want to look at carbohydrate because sugar is just a piece of that puzzle. Um, but the apps that I, I was recommending earlier, you know, my big three that I like to call them, um, Bow Meals, Lose It, and My, my Fitness Pal are all free apps that are for any phones, but also you can access these um, on the Internet too. Um, but these are some really nice ways to look up information um, and document what you're eating so you can take a better, uh, a closer look at, at how many carbohydrate you're eating, but also looking at the big picture of you know, how many calories am I eating a day and then working with a dietitian to kind of help hone in on what's best for you. Okay, great. Well, thank you so much for this informative presentation. Uh, and next month we've got pregnant, Pregnancy with Diabetes. So Ginger Vieira and Jennifer Smith, who's a CDERD, uh, and both women are type have type 1 diabetes and their moms. So they're going to be here to share their advice on how to have a, a healthy pregnancy when you have diabetes. So you, you'll learn why blood sugar management is so critical at every stage, including preconception and throughout your pregnancy, as well as during delivery and in the postpartum period. So go to diabeticlifestyle.com and click on Live Well to link to the registration page. And finally, thanks to all of you who took the time to be with us today to learn more about A1C management. We hope to see you next month.